Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Nichols and Philip Nielsen from Regional Design Service, an architecture firm based in Corowa, a regional town located on the New South Wales and Victorian border, about three hours drive from Melbourne. Their five-person practice is focused on delivering meaningful, thought-provoking and sustainable design outcomes for regional and rural communities and their inhabitants. In this episode, we discuss the reason they decided to start their practice in a regional town despite lots of warnings from their peers, how they've engaged with the local community through events, exhibitions and local government to improve local awareness of the values and principles of architects, why they remain connected to their urban counterparts and promote working in regional practice. We also spoke about some of the challenges of the local construction market, why they hired a communications person early on and what that person's role entails, how Aaron and Philip approach their different roles in the business as directors, and some of the strategies that they've used to elevate their digital marketing and achieve success. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Aaron and Philip from Regional Design Service. So... Uh, regional design service. I thought we'd start off by kind of setting the stage for everybody. So we've got people listening in like the UK, America. They they haven't been to Corowa or any sort of small town in, in regional Australia. So do, would one of you guys like to start talking a little bit about where your practice is based and kind of what, what it's like around where you work? Well, Corowa is a small town uh, on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. It's about 45 minutes west from uh, the next major city, which is Albury and Wodonga. Um, we started a practice out here on the back of pitching for a, a local cinema and a golf club when we were living in Melbourne and um, won the project. We were planning on working from Melbourne and commuting to Corowa. I was born here. That's how we sort of ended up pitching for this project from the start. I never thought I'd live here again. Um, we pitched for that project and won it. Uh, so that's how we came to be here. Yeah. And, and so that project, were the other architects that were pitching for that as well, were they, were they also kind of Melbourne-based and, and, and that sort of thing? That'd be a dream if another architect was pitching for it, but a, a local golf club had had uh, put their hat into the ring for some grant funding. Uh, council awarded it, and we said, someone's got to do this. Surely it's not going to be a project delivered by a builder, and we won it. Um, our feeling is that there were no other architects pitching for it. What do you think, Philip? Yeah, it, it definitely weren't. It was more of like there was a DNC company that just delivers cinemas that had been chasing the golf club Um and really offering something very generic from what we saw. Yeah. And so at that time, was that the kind of work that you were doing? Um, or was this like, a, hey, there's an opportunity to do the sort of work that we're kind of interested in doing? Um, so we were kind of working out how to start a practice and how to get that off the ground. And, you know, Aaron spotted this project and our backgrounds had been, you know, mine personally been in residential, multi-residential, hospitality, like quite a diverse portfolio, train stations, airports. Um, so we were kind of very open-minded in terms of the type of practice we wanted to, well, the type of projects we wanted to deliver as a practice. And this one was really just the catalyst. We had the experience, we had the capability, and we saw the opportunity. And, you know, in, in addition to us pitching for this job, Aaron actually called the local council and said, you know, we're thinking about starting a practice. 
are there any architects? Do you actually need architects? And they said, well, send us your um, capability statement, which we didn't even have at the time, uh, come up next week and we'll meet with you because there's no architects in the region. So, you know, the, the same day we won the golf club project, we walked out of a council meeting with the offer of work as well. So, you know, everything kind of just happened all in this one weekend where we were camping in the caravan park um, next to the council chambers. <laughs> and the only so, reason we so, were doing that is because there was another event on in town that had booked out every single motel room. So we thought, all right, we'll put the tent in the car and literally walked across the caravan park to the council chamber and had a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're in Melbourne. So, just just for the audience, how far is how far is Corowa from Melbourne by uh, by caravan? It's three and a half. <laughs> exactly, <hours>. <laughs> exactly three and a half hours door to door from where we were living. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. And so, the council invite you guys up, like the guests of honor, to come and discuss this idea of possibly like starting your uh, office, launching your company in their town. So it's not like you know you hear these stories about big cities trying to attract a big company, like oh we've got to get Apple to the headquarters over in our city, sort of thing. And it's always this big deal. But but you guys hadn't even you hadn't even really started your practice at that point, right? So this was like they're not luring over some you know twenty person firm. They're going. But we would just love you to start a business here. That's what we would like to see. Absolutely. You know, in the meeting, they were like, there's so many empty shop fronts in the main street. You know, if you need help talking to one of the building owners to get a lease, uh, let us know, you know, anything we can do to help. Uh, let's make this happen. They really wanted a professional service setting up in town. Hmm. And, and council was council was um, in administration at the time because of a merger between two councils, Coral Council and um, the adjoining one, to form what we understand the, the largest local government area in New South Wales. So they were looking for ideas on how to build on this um, this opportunity and we arrived just at the right time, coincidentally mm-hmm. more than intentionally. Yeah. So I think I read in one of your other articles it was saying something like there hadn't been another architect in the area since like the 70s mm. or something like that. Mm. So so a lot of professional and service businesses I imagine had started, had been kind of gradually moving out of the area over the decades, mm. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 1974, um, the last architect literally died and he'd taken over from his father's practice that started in the 1890s. So there's a huge... Uh, a lot of great buildings and great approaches to to urban design and so on in our town, but the wheels fell off in 1974 and because uh, there were some good builders in town, they continued doing that until the early 80s and then they they retired. From that point on, it was a GNC model that informed pretty much all of the progress in the town. Yeah, and I guess guess to, like, it's the last record we have of an architectural practice in the town. I'm sure there's been semi-retired architects who've come up here, but they've never really, you know, said about having a business for architecture. They might have done a few carports or small extensions that we just don't, no one knows about. So, yeah. So, so with the, was the local community prior to, prior to you guys arriving, were they kind of seeking architectural services from the big cities or the local area or were they just not really engaging with architects at that point? Uh, yes and no. Yeah. Sorry, Philip. Um, uh, yes and no. Uh, farmers who have children going to school, boarding school in Melbourne and Sydney, obviously are connected with with networks up there and were commissioning architects to come from big cities. 
to extend their houses, build new houses, build holiday houses. Councils have had some engagement with architects when projects were put out to open tender, but generally people were relying on builders or building companies. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. so really the, the people engaging architects from the city were only the ones who could afford, you know, a day site visit every few yeah. months. So, um, yeah. you know, that was what was happening with private residential. And then with public or commercial, a lot of it was just DNC. Uh, you know, in one instance, we actually tended against a structural engineer with in-house design. You know, yeah. so we don't even pitch against other architects generally. Yeah, wow. And so, and so you get to... Um you get to you get to town and you're in your caravan park across from the council chambers, and um, and do you start? At what point do you start actually seriously thinking about making the move and actually setting up there? Does it all happen that weekend, or do you come back? Is it something that unfolds gradually over the course of time as you work on this project? It happened that weekend. We walked up the street after the council meeting. We found a shop. It was one hundred dollars a week. We walked into the agent <laughs> and we made an offer. And we had an agreement of, to rent this place. And four weeks later, we bring a, brought a van up from Melbourne full of stuff and opened our doors. Amazing. And it was just the two of you at this point? You, you Well, definitely just the two of you and a dog maybe or something like that. But you, you didn't have any, you didn't start off with any employees or anything like that, just the two? Well, we, we actually started as a, a group of three. So right. um, my good friend, Regina Kalusny actually started the practice with us. Um, okay. We've been to uni together and worked together and lived together over the years. So yeah, cool. It was originally um, the three of us. All right. So we're, we're at this point now we're starting the, we're starting off in town. So you guys, you, you drag all your stuff up from Melbourne and you set up this new office, beautiful office space, by the way, really incredible. Um, and what's your first so you're working on this one project and then what do you do from there? Do you just start going out and like you hang your shingle up and then start walking up and down the street, shaking hands and kissing babies? Or what's the what's the approach to kind of getting things started in the new town? That was pretty much it. <laughs> and I guess, you know, to, to get the ball rolling because we only had that one project, uh, I negotiated with my employer in Melbourne to go part-time where I worked three days a week there and then I'd drive up on Wednesday nights three and a half hours and spend Thursday, Friday and weekends working. Aaron would get the train up on Friday nights and then we'd both drive back Sunday. So we actually did that for a whole year. Oh, really? So you basically kind of worked, you're sort of transitioning between the two cities for a little while there. Yeah, we, we, well, we had to because we needed to build work and then we needed to kind of separate our our city lives while still being able to, you know, eat and um, pay the bills. Mind you, we were travelling 800 kilometres a week, so I don't know how many times I needed to book the cars in for for servicing. It was like, here we go again, 800 k's a week to and from, and it ended up being pretty crazy. (laughs) So what were your your colleagues and your previous workplace and friends and family, what were they all saying at this point? Not just the amount of travel you were doing, but this idea, this scheme you guys had to launch regional design service in a a small town. Um, What were the other architects saying? Uh, you're wasting the other business people. (laughs) You're wasting your careers. You will never have good projects. You will never have good fees and you'll never have recognition. 
Really? That was, you know, the key kind of takeaways. I called a lot of my mentors and they're all like, you're crazy. You're just going to go and waste yourself out in the country. <laughs> yeah. And certainly from my perspective, um, a lot of people didn't even, couldn't even grasp the concept of opening up a design practice in the country. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people in the city think that the city does everything and that they push this stuff out to the country. So even starting a practice up there was blowing their mind. And having been on the product supply side of architecture and design for a long time, the thought of even specifying product that you could buy in the city up in the country was something they couldn't get their head around. So people were wishing as well because ultimately everyone wants a bit of a sea change or a tree change rather. But the concept of actually doing what we do in the city up in the country was just so far from their imagination. (laughs) One time we had a rep say, um, you know it's real stone. Can your client actually afford it? <laughs> Just because we're in the country. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So you're overcoming some stereotypes and sort of things Things there. Um, did you have any of your own doubts at the time? Well, of course. But, you know, really we thought, well, our shop was $100 a week to rent. Like, Yeah. Low, low risk, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if it, if it didn't work, everyone was right we could go back. Yeah, cool. Um, so it was kind of low risk and you could kind of take off and, and go like, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Um, obviously, the travel was a really, really big sacrifice. But did the, did the local council kind of, um, did they sort of live up, to their, live up to their promises in terms of sort of nurturing and um, paving the way for you guys a little bit? Or, or once you got there, it was kind of um, every man for themselves. <laughs> Maybe what happened next once you were kind of making that move? Uh, look, I'll, I'll comment on that if I can. Um, yeah. In the early days, we had fantastic support. The council was in a transition period. They had um, a, a caretaker general manager in place and they really wanted this thing to happen. Once everything settled down and they were starting to, I guess, default back to their way of working, we were pushed to the side because, um, the, you know, the engineering team and the uh, development team just wanted to continue on with the way they'd always worked and that's as a consequence of having staff members who didn't go anywhere. So it was then a process of 12 to 18 months, even 24 months of those people leaving because things were changing that we started to be invited back to the table. So in short, no, we weren't. We were more or less, yep, welcome to town. Oh, by the way, we're going to continue doing things the way we've always done it. So it was hard work. We had to change tactic. We were promised a, a pretty large project actually assessing all of council's assets for insurance purposes, and it was a quite exciting project. Um, That project was put on a back burner because they literally had to perform to manage that staff member out um, (laughs) of the business so that they could um, then work out what they're going to do with that role. So it never came to fruition. They worked out another way of doing it. So we pushed ahead with being in town, being a great business, being part of the community, and uh, projects came out of the woodworks. We had a residential client sign up in the first month that we were there, and within 12 months we had 15 projects live just by being on the main street, being visible and being accessible, aside from council. Wow. And yeah. so, and it was a pretty broad array of projects, right? So it's not just all one type of thing. It was, it was a real mix of those 15 projects across lots mm. of different areas. Mm. Mm. And Philip, maybe yeah. you want to comment on that? Yeah, like we we won the cinema project, then we won a few residential projects, so they were new builds and um, alterations and additions, and then that grew to 
by the end of that year, we were collaborating with another local business to deliver a regional placemaking project for the rural city of Wangaratta. So visiting 23 communities and consolidating all their township plans. So, you know, we, we, we kind of got there and, and hit the ground and was really working on, um, you know, building our presence. Wow. So, and so Korowa has, I, I read, a population of 5,500 people. So it's, a, it's a, you know, I don't know, is that is that kind of a small town in the area compared to the surrounding towns or, or how does it sort of fit in these other sort of areas that you're working as well? Oh, look, I would say it's a major town. Um, we sit between two cities, Wangaratta and Albury. Um, we are a local hub for things like stockyards, sale yards. So every Monday, uh, farmers bring all of their stock into this town to sell. Um, every Friday, most people come into town to do business. At one stage, we had five banks and, and six pubs. So it's a major centre and it was established for that very reason because it sits in great proximity to not only capital cities, Canberra, Sydney and Melbourne, but regional towns, Janiliquin, Wagga, Albury, Wangaratta and so on. Um, so it's, a, it's a, an important town because people come in to do banking, do their shopping and so on. Um, most other towns between here and those cities are, are small. And is that why the visibility on the main street was so effective when you've got people because I'm thinking about how do you kind of reach out into these other towns that maybe, you know, half an hour away or whatever. Um, mm. it, but, but does that kind of answer that they come into town and they're driving down the main street on Friday to do business and they go, oh, what's that that's sort of popped up there, this new office? Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, and that's why we um, have had great success because we're visible and people walk past. We, we've always made a point of, of um, having our shop front looking great. Uh, I, I have a background, as, as, as you know, in supply and um, working for companies like Fitra, uh, Herman Miller and Artemidi, the front of house is the most important part of your business. And um, not only when the doors are open, but when the doors are closed at night, what does the window look like? So if somebody's going out for dinner or going to the pub or whatever, they can still see that we're there. We're, we're not on a second floor somewhere with a sign on the door. We're actually visible and part of the streetscape. We were one of the only shops in the main street that left their lights on at night so people could see <laughs> in. And we weren't even a retailer. <laughs> we understood that, you know, people come past and they want to know what's going on and they want to peer through the windows. So we started doing it and then we started noticing some of the retailers adopting it as well. It's this kind of really passive um, <laughs> encouragement of the town to kind of, you know, just leave your shop front light on. <laughs> just little things like that. Um, this, this question, these are projects that you picked up initially. Um, maybe Phil, I'll get you to speak to this a little bit. But you know, was where do you feel? Do you feel, and I guess, do you continue to feel that you know? I, well, some of those other architects were saying to you, look, there's not going to be any good projects for you out there, right? They obviously didn't know what they were talking about, but that's the kind of what you were being told going into it. But when you were getting these these project opportunities and people coming to you and going, I oh, would love to get you to work on our house or, or, or whatever, did how did you kind of rate the quality of those opportunities generally compared to what you were used to in, in Melbourne? They were all good opportunities. Like we and... We were agile and, I guess, experienced enough to see every type of project as a good project. So, you know, whether it was a small, you know, shelter off the side of a house for a new deck or it was a new build, you know, we really saw the opportunity. Like we had to make um, the opportunities 
and build into each of those projects uh, who we were so we could, you know, build regional design service very quickly uh, and make something of everything, as small as it was or as big as it was. And what kind of, I guess, what kind of, um, I suppose, attitudes did they have towards towards architects and, and architecture at that time? Most didn't know what we actually did. And right, okay. that's as we, st- you know, started to discover and hear about how long it had been since an architect had been in town that we realised very quickly we've got to go on a really big and fast journey to show people what it is we do. Uh, and so with the cinema job project, we, you know, really pushed the golf club when they said we need to have a community night to show them what's happening. We, you know, asked them to give a 30-minute presentation on the design and not just like the floor plan and a visualisation to actually take the community on the journey of how did we come up with the design and what was the ambition and the intention because we wanted to show them it's not just stacked chairs in a row in tiered seating and some curtains. There's a lot more thinking behind it. So we we, were really um, trying to show the community our skill set and, you know, by the end of that meeting, we had people coming up and shaking our hands <laughs> and saying thank you so much. And um, if I could add to that too, we then realised that the community, because they really didn't know what architecture did, we had to roll out a series of talks over um, a, on a quarterly period to start informing the community about the, the value of design and what architects and designers actually do. And it started off on a really simple note. We had a, a talk uh, in, a, in a local bar about uh, art deco design and when we we looked at all things art deco and started fleshing out people's preconceptions of it looking at some examples of of art deco buildings around the town and uh sold tickets to do it so it wasn't a free event we supported the bar that we were at we covered our costs and we packed it out the second event we had another talk and did the same thing uh, and that was a way of uh, reinforcing our presence in town showing people what we did taking down the barriers because you're not going to get someone walk in the door and say, so what do you guys do? <laughs> we took it to ground level, um, shared some drinks and stories and, and filtered it out that way, backed up by a strong social media campaign behind it and local paper being invited along uh, and so on. But it, that, that backed up what we were trying to do on, a ground, on the ground level. We really wanted to connect it to what people, we knew people would understand. And so we, when we gave a talk about modernism, we really talked about health acts and the invention of the car and how that changed society and how design like modernism evolved out of that. So people already know about health acts or, you know, cars or town planning. They understand that, but they don't necessarily think they know about design. By knowing those things, you know design. So we were trying to get them to be able to engage and talk to us more openly through letting them feel like they're an, they're a participant. They can have a conversation with us. Yeah, so so when you're choosing your topics, I mean, that's such a great idea. So you weren't, I guess you were kind of coming to, kind of getting get, going through the lens of what do they already kind of know about, right? And so you're choosing, and the reason you chose something like Art Deco, right, for, for one of these um, talks was that because it was something that was sort of well-known, a well-known sort of aesthetic in the town and some of the architecture there and things like that. What were some of the other things that you spoke about or did these quarterly uh, talks or lectures on? 
Modernism was a pretty important one because it informed so much of what we're about. Um, unfortunately, COVID threw down the gauntlet of having to put everything on hold and so we were starting to share more of what we do online and building up projects so that people could see the progress of them online and, um, you know, on-site shots of buildings buildings coming out of the ground and so on. Um, unfortunately, because we couldn't gather in large groups, COVID really threw the um, through the roadblock down, let's say. And we, yeah. we had planned to do, you know, talks of different types of designers. So, you know, we were kind of like laying the groundwork for what do architects do, but we wanted to also bring in landscape architects or graphic designers and have them mm. present to the community be like, you know, this is um, this is actually what we do. We don't just go and put plants on the ground. Um, this is what landscape architecture actually is. So, you know, unfortunately, we haven't got there yet, and it's something you know we're still wanting to bring back. Uh, but what we've seen um, with going to our largest studio is the creation of the exhibition space and being able to have a dialogue by bringing people in the door into our space. You brought up the exhibitions, um, and I was gonna—I was mentioning three nine five nine, which is the one I saw is kind of open at the moment. Um, uh, but do you want to maybe talk about that and then maybe some of your other ideas around exhibitions and, and, and sort of how that differentiates maybe a little bit from uh, the presentations as well and uh, yeah. all, the, all the talks or the events? So I guess the idea behind having the gallery space is we wanted something that was flexible, that we didn't really charge for. So it's not a bookable, like chargeable space. We don't need to make money off it to make it work. So that was kind of the first thing we could, you know, offer. And then, you know, in terms of we started curating a whole range of exhibitions at the end of 2019 and they were as diverse as having, we we actually invited Trius to exhibit their models because everyone loves looking at models. So let's bring the community in to see that. Um, and then, you know, I had a friend in the UK who is a musician that's evolved into doing compositions for Stan TV series. So, you know, we wanted to, I guess, we invited him to come over the end of 2020 <laughs> before COVID and, and somehow work out how do you exhibit a career in a creative industry? And, and that's probably what our driver is behind everything we want to exhibit is if a teenager comes in from the local high school, that they could see how, you know, this friend of ours started as a garage band with an interest in music and has pursued a career that's evolved into composing music for TV. Like that's really like we want to connect with the community and show how creative design careers can happen um, without really planning it. So that's kind of the idea for the exhibition space. And having 395 come along, you know, Callum interviewed us as part of his bushfire research project. And then he, you know, in that he had a lot of interest for exhibiting in the city, uh, but he wanted to exhibit first regionally. So that was kind of he asked us if we'd host it and we said absolutely. And if, um, if I could add to that, the number of times that we heard um, a particular television show referenced when it came to what is design or what is architecture, I could have screamed. Um, and that just showed us that, that people's exposure to what um, a new home meant was everything that you could see on TV to be done in a space of three months, which was 
totally wrong. As we all know, you cannot design a house in three months. You cannot build it in in six months. Um, We had to break down all this misconception about design being quick and easy and cheap. Uh, based on what they've been pumped by by local media. And, and that's just as a consequence of, one, an architect not being in town, but two, mainstream media pushing this quick and easy approach to particularly residential design into their heads. And then that permeating down to their roles um, on councils to get things done as quickly and as cheaply as possible for a bit of a flashy uh, result that's not sustainable in many ways. That was a hard thing to break down and still is. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, when you when you have clients coming in the door at this point, because you have been, COVID aside, you have been doing quite a lot of this sort of educational stuff and these events. Um, if somebody comes in for the first time and you've never met them before and they say, I've got a project, do you guys at this point kind of go, hey, maybe um, maybe you should attend a few of our, uh, our lectures and, and, and that sort of thing before you come back and start a project? Or um, <laughs> because you've got, you've got so many people um, so, uh, so involved and, and improve their sort of, you know, their interest and their passion for design and their knowledge about design. Um, you know, how do you feel now when you get the, get the old, the old school client who, um, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't know what's going on now at this point? Is it a little bit frustrating or you, you sort of run them through a little bit of a crash course? Well, the crash course is a very simple conversation around the two critical elements. And that is how much time have you got to do it and how much do you want to spend on it? And that's where the conversation starts because they have a preconceived idea in their head that they can build a four-bedroom, two-living area, you know, uh, outdoor entertaining area, house for $650,000. No, you can't do it. If you want to use an architect, uh, it is going to cost you more than that. And the reason it will cost you more is because we want to build this so it's something that you have for a long time so that your family keep for a long time. Um, and then the conversation starts opening up and like, oh, okay, right. And then we use the, the, the comparison between the difference between an architect and a draftsperson, for example, and that is an architect will give you what you need, a draftsperson will give you what you tell them to, uh, and with no disrespect to draft people by any means. And then we go into the conversation of, well, if it does go over budget and it will go over budget in the planning stage, we have the skills to pull it back. We have the skills to work with our suppliers and push and pull the design to get it to where you want it. That's part of our obligation to you. Once you put that into context, particularly with older clients or even rural clients, of which we have a lot, they start to get the value of design or the value of architecture. Away from that that scenario that I explained before, where they've seen something on television, they've opened their local domain and seen a, um, a domestic house builder advertising houses for a certain price, it breaks it all down right away. Phil, did you want to add to that? Uh, not really. Like, I, I guess... Well, yeah, I will. Um, we are transitioning in the age of our practice where m- a lot of our new clients are coming as referral. So in the first four years, we're really building that kind of, here's what we do, here's what we are, this is design, this is what we can offer. Now they're really starting to come in the door because one of our clients has said, you have to go use these guys like they will make your lives. So it, it, the, the conversation's shifting for us um, and we're, we're evol- you know, you've got to keep evolving. We're evolving with that shift. Yeah. We were very intentional to never say no. We don't ever want to say no to a client. It's always going to be we can refer you to someone who can help. And that is connecting us up with local drafts, people who have a respect for what we do and similarly the respect for what they do. We give them work that 
doesn't work for our studio. Um, it's not sustainable in many ways, but give something back to the town by referring it locally. So we never say no to someone. It's always the conversation around when do you want to do it, how much do you want to pay, and whether or not architectural services are going to be right for your project. Just sometimes we're not right for the client. Mm. Yeah, yeah, understandably. So before every before every architect out there like you know packs their bags and um, jumps in the car and rents a caravan <laughs> and gets their U-Haul ready to um, come and find a town that ideally hasn't had an architect for thirty years because um, you guys have made it sound pretty good so far. What are some of the challenges uh, that you've found so far of building your office? Um, you know, outside the big cities. And maybe Aaron, you can do you want to start first. off with this one? Oh, no, I'm going to go first. Okay. Um, look, for me, coming back to a town that I left at 18, being a gay person in a country town in the early 90s was a shitty experience. I uh, couldn't get far enough away. So in the first few months, it was really challenging for me not to be that 18-year-old who wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. Um, and I have to be really raw and honest and say that that took a little while for me to get my head around. Uh, Philip <laughs> tempered that really well by saying, it's not the early 90s anymore. Things have changed. Don't yeah. worry about what people think. And there is a generation of people uh, in small towns where reputation is everything. It matters what people think. And they, they don't grow as people or expand their minds as a consequence of being worried about what other people think. So for me, that getting past that challenge was so liberating because it meant it's like, you know what, bite me. <laughs> I'm not leaving town. You can you can catch up or check out. Uh, yeah. That's the first challenge. The second thing, and Philip will probably add to this too, is sometimes you just want to go and eat really great food. <laughs> and yeah. given that there is, for hospitality venues, it's really hard to recruit people out here. So the quality of chef or the quality of a dining experience can be a little bit compromised. We're really lucky that we've got one great Italian restaurant here, actually run by Italian people, but it's not great for the waistline. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's your regular spot. You're at the Italian restaurant most nights of the week. <laughs> it is. And, you know, she's an interior decorator and she gets design. Um, so it's yeah. a really fantastic environment to be in. Uh, we're grateful to have it. Um, there's one good pub, and, again, it's taken someone from out of town to see the potential in a country town to get this pub moving. Um, there wow. are four other pubs that are languishing in, you know, a really awful space where they, they cater to the lowest common denominator of, of client. But that, that, that's a real challenge for us. Phil, did you want to add a few more? I'm sure you can find a couple. I guess, you know, we've seen a lot of closed-mindedness, um, and that's not necessarily that people are averse to change. It's just they um, haven't maybe seen uh, the kind of change uh, that's possible uh, and there's a bit of kind of, well, our friends aren't asking for it so why would we? And and that's kind of been why as a community-minded practice that we've uh, really got involved with other elements of the community. So um, joining things like a refugee uh, resettlement group, which Aaron's now the chair of, uh, which was actually founded by uh, church groups to, you know, look at how do we um, play a role in the collective future of our community. So it's it's kind of we're not trying to change it to make it better for us. Um, we're trying to get involved to make it more dynamic and diverse for all. 
Philip touched on the fact that we're part of a refugee resettlement group and nothing will stir up fear in a, a rural community more than the idea of refugees taking their jobs and all of the rental properties are in town. That's an example of, of um, deep embedded fear and misinformation. Uh, when an architect turns up in town and say, oh, well, you know, they've got plenty of money. We don't have plenty of money. We work with clients who do have money by all means, but as practitioners we do not. And sometimes this um, uh, tall poppy syndrome can manifest itself, but ultimately it's about fear and misunderstanding. So that's why we embark on this whole program of community-based events. We stand up and get involved in committees. I'm also on the Arts and Cultural Advisory Committee, which tell our local, not tell, rather, show our local, local council better ways of involving arts and culture in day-to-day -day life. So unless you get involved, as Philip said, you can't expect change to happen. You need to be an active participant. If we reflect on the architect who was in town prior to us, he was involved in, in, in committees all the time. In fact, council had an architect employed with council to deliver better results right up until the 70s. So, yeah, absolutely step up. If you don't step up, then you can't expect change to be as quick as you want it to be. Yeah. I'm a, I imagine that as your practice grows, um, attracting attracting young people to work for you or, or anybody to come and work with you guys, that must be, um, is that is that something that's kind of challenging to do or are you rapidly turning it into such a such an awesome area to live through your contributions that um, that uh, you kind of, we're working on that as the long-term plan to draw in other people um, to do the same sort of move that you did. But is um, has hiring been difficult and growing the practice uh, has that has that been a challenging process? It, it's an interesting question in the sense that we've never um, really actively looked for someone before until this year. We've nearly always had people knock on the door or come to us. Uh, you know, like literally just walk in the front door and say, "Hi, I've got this skill set. Uh, can we have a chat?" Uh, and it's in those moments that we kind of go, "Okay, well, let's." Um, cap capture this opportunity and work out how we can grow from it. So, you know, we actually employed a student interior designer from Wodonga TAFE in our first year of the company because she sent us a resume and popped in to say hi. And we thought, okay, well, let's, um, let's see where this goes. And she worked with us for almost a year. And then, you know, the same happened um, with an Egyptian immigrant who couldn't get a job in Australia, um, even at Pillow Talk, and she was a qualified interior designer from Egypt. So, you know, we, we met her by chance and we just said, well, you know, do you want to come in and work a few days a week? Uh, and that's kind of been how we've, uh, you know, really found um, team members to join the business. And it's also how we've learned to, you know, manage um, team members because, you know, we've never run a business before. And we, um, we've had four work experience students from local high schools come and it has been such a privilege to have these young minds opening up over the course of the, the week that they're there. Our biggest concern is that they go back to their schools and forget about the experience. Well, we have trouble getting young people even to come to art exhibitions because in the public system, the, uh, their teachers are usually so stretched for time and resource that they don't have time to do a field trip out to the local art gallery or the local art show, let alone have time to come and spend in an architecture practice understanding what design is. So for the week that we have them there, we try to immerse them in what it is we do um, quite intensely. 
the continuum is such that we hope that these people go off to university or even apply for a course in design. That's the first step. Um, but we have had great success in employing a young person who wasn't able to get down to Melbourne because uh, of lockdown and was stuck in town. He had finished his bachelor and has spent the last 12 months working with us. He's about to go to Melbourne to finish his master's, to do his master's rather. Um, that's been a great result. He's told a lot of friends uh, about what he does and how he does it. But most of his friends are tradies and, of course, they're, <laughs> they're the first to say you don't really need an architect. So Nick's been literally on the ground trying to sell the benefits of architecture to all of his mates who are going, oh, no, you don't need an architect. So from his perspective as a member of our team, it's actually been really hard to try and convince young people to take up a career in design or architecture because as a trader you can make great money, you can have your own business. Why do you need an architect? So I think would you agree, Philip, that Nick's actually had a hard job tempering the value of what we do or selling it rather but temp tempering the negativity so i guess you know the complexity for some of our team and, and nick um because there's not been an architect in the region well an architectural practice that's very visible for young people like nick to even imagine a career in architectural design you know there's just no role modeling they've been able to come in and we've kind of connected them with their interest. So, you know, our first work experience student, she is interested in graphic design um, and a career in that path. And before we were there, who would she have ever really reached out to locally? Um, the majority of work experience kids actually had to travel to Melbourne or Sydney to find uh, that experience. And that's if they were capable of doing that for a week. So, you know, um, Lillian, who jo you know joined us for that one week, she's now moved to Melbourne and is studying at university in graphic design. So, you know, we, we, we can't claim complete credit for it, but, you know, to be able just to have that weak intervention um, where we can open a dialogue, we could connect her with people in the city uh, that she might be able to get further work experience or even a job from is, uh, you know, really exciting. And I guess for like Nick, you know, he would never have ever dreamt that he would be able to work in his own hometown to gain his first professional work experience. And he's been with us, well, will be with us for a whole year before he goes back to do his master's, you know, and, and he kind of jokingly talks about the only role models he had as architects were uh, from sick, American sitcoms. So, which, you know, don't necessarily shine a great light on the profession. Uh, they're usually a parody or a villain. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's an interesting kind of engagement in a way. Yeah, that's so interesting. As far as reaching out to, reaching out to architects in other places or, or kind of you keeping in touch with, your peers and the and and the rest of the architecture industry in, in in New South Wales and Victoria and everything like that, um, it's something that you, even the ex exhibition you were talking about earlier, you know, involving other architects and hosting that in your exhibition space. Why is that so important to you guys to maintain that relationship with architects that, that um you know outside your town or in the cities? Well, yeah, we just want to do it, but also it's about maintaining our connection to our peers and uh, having an open dialogue and conversation, you know, being in the country can be quite isolating professionally. And before COVID, you know, we, we were constantly emailing the Institute or um, other bodies to say, hey, can you start doing online 
CPD or networking events and, and a lot of the pushback was, oh, no, we don't have the capacity or we'll have to ask speakers to give approval for their presentations to be recorded. Um, and we were kind of pushing back saying, no, no, just, you know, we just like to listen in. We don't need to see the presentations. And then COVID happened and overnight everyone went to Zoom, everyone went to digital meetings. Uh, you know, we, we actually became more connected uh, to our peers and in our industry than before. So uh, recently we caught up with a friend in the city um, and they actually confided in me after the lockdowns that they finally understood, you know, the context of where we are and how isolating it must be professionally to not have those chance kind of catch-ups in a coffee shop or bumping into each other in the street where you share, like, what are you working on? What are you doing? What issues are you having? You know, we've got to pick up the phone or make an appointment time with friends sometimes to do that when we're regional. And uh, to, to really, I guess, you know, it's, it's very important for us to maintain it. So we've been doing that through sharing our story, making sure we're visible, reminding people that we're here and that they might, you know, pick up the phone and start the conversation with us. So it's, you know, it, it works both ways and um, we know that we need to work, you know, extra hard to maintain that connection. Yeah, that's so important. Um, but do you guys ever worry that you might end up actually attracting some competition into town if you keep talking about how, uh, how much fun you're having? There's enough pieces of the pie for everybody out here. There's so much. Like we're at the point now that we've, we've tightened up the way that we work and, and sharpened our fee proposals and so on. There's more work that we can handle. Um, and we, we've recently started up a group called the, the, the Border Forum um, and we connect with architects from Albury and from Wagga and so on and come together just to socialise. And this is something having cut my teeth in the industry in, in the 90s in Sydney was a really important part of what we did. Every Friday night there'd be drinks somewhere to sit down and talk about the week, let alone interject um, design with it. It was never too formal. It wasn't a presentation. You didn't have to book tickets. But people came together in a collegiate way um, and have made lifelong friends. I've got friendships that I made in Sydney that are still really strong. They come and stay with us. I stay with them. We've now got kids. We, we share dog pictures and all that sort of stuff. And I hold on to this thing that there's enough pieces of the pie for everybody. Just don't try and cut each other's grass. And unfortunately, a generation before us were, had to do that because they had to make their business, but they've held on to that way of working of don't say too much. Don't go to that event because, you know, our clients might see you talking to someone else. I really believe that's a crock of shit and should really be thrown out the window. Together we're stronger um, and if we come together as an industry and show that this thing is for everyone, um, then it, it naturally then permeates through our friendship circles outside of architecture to show that architecture really isn't as um, – <sighs> Upper class. Upper class is a really good word to use out in the country because architects uh, traditionally had been associated with accountants and doctors and lawyers and so on as a higher art. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of older people still see architecture as that. Um, it's not as snobby as it used to be. And the, the, the worst thing we can do is not talk to each other and, and um, I guess, reinforce that misconception rather. I don't really see other practices as direct competitors. Aaron and I and our team have a very particular design style and approach to how we work that, you know, our peers here don't work like that. 
from what we understand and they have a particular style and a particular aesthetic. So if a client comes to us and they go to them and we don't win the job, then the client's picked the right person to work with. And there's so many projects here for everyone. We had 15 projects in our first year, 25 in our second. Like, and, and we were servicing that many clients and projects because we probably weren't charging what we needed to be because we were trying to educate about the value of what we do. But there were just so many people coming out of the woodwork saying, we need help, we need design, um, can you help us? And we, we didn't really know, you know, if we couldn't do it, who to turn them to. So, you know, the more the merrier, there's heaps of work. Uh, and I guess, you know, people know that in the city, you know, you're competing, um, you know, you know you've got your tender against three other practices at least. Uh, and the right person gets the job. Sometimes it's based on design. Sometimes it's based on fee. Sometimes you'll never know. But, um, yeah, we're, you know, we've known of a few practices to start now in the region and we're really excited about that growing design community here. We, we had a, a, a very similar conversation at, at the last Border Forum meeting and I said to someone else, I said, look, as long as we make sure we don't actively steal projects off each other and that is going in and, and counter-pitching once the client has decided, then we're okay. You get into some pretty nasty stuff if you're trying to actively steal clients. A client should make up their own mind based on how good you are as a business. And organically, that's going to make people do their best work. And, and when you guys put your, your fee proposals together and have that sort of your strategies around that worked out, I mean, how, how does it kind of compare to, um, I suppose, what, what goes on in, in Sydney and in Melbourne? Because I think there's this sort of this pressure on architects in in Melbourne to start thinking that, you know, if a project's less than 750 grand or a million dollars or whatever, I'm just not going to make any money doing that. And there's this sort of real budget thing going on. Um, and I can imagine them having a little bit of a fear about budgets, right, in 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 your area. Um, and would it, would it be feasible to actually run a studio with, with smaller budgets and those sorts of concerns? But do you want to maybe talk a little bit to... I guess how your how your fees and how your business model works, um, and do you think it sort of yeah uh, your general feelings about it, Phil? Do you want to start off? Our practice doesn't base its fees on a percentage of the project value. We base it on the perceived work required for the project and the complexity of the brief from the client. So uh, we don't necessarily charge any differently from a low budget project to a high budget project. Uh, because each requires, you know, the same amount of work, whether it's, you know, low budget managing a complex, you know, set of parameters to achieve the brief and achieve the price point, whereas with the higher projects where our clients aren't so worried about uh, the upper limits of the budget, you know, we're, we're detailing more, we're documenting more than perhaps what we would on a lower budget. For us, the concern about budget isn't uh, so much whether we can meet the budget. It's become more about whether our builders in the region can actually deliver to that budget. Uh, recently with COVID, we've actually had to start turning away clients um, that have low budgets, not because we wouldn't be able to deliver the project uh, succinctly and, and on budget, but because the builders in the region aren't capable of meeting the price because they're so busy 
we've you know we we know of builders who tradition you know the volume builders who traditionally would have had 100 projects a year they're now delivering 250 and what that's done is all the bespoke builders it, they've poached all the carpenters and joiners and uh, apprentices from the bespoke builders uh, to go and deliver projects in three months rather than a 12-month bespoke build. So, you know, we've seen our builders really struggle to maintain their team, which in turn means they can't deliver the projects and then they've started pumping their prices up and they're looking for bigger budgets where they can, you know, really sink their teeth into it rather than a small budget. So one of our projects recently, the builder said, look, I'm pitching for two $1.5 million projects and yours is only half a mil. If I win one of these 1.5s, I won't be able to build this half a mil because it's not worth my time. <laughs> and, and you know, for us to go and then talk to the client about that's so difficult to tell them that their, you know, their ambition isn't enough um, and their budget isn't big enough just to build it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been a really interesting uh, shift for us in how we're managing our projects and team in that sense. Mm. What we find out here is that the market has been so used to mucking everything up so that everyone in the food chain gets something that if we want to specify a quality project product rather, we get to the point of having to compromise the design because the client um, the budget goes over. Uh, for example, light fittings. If we specify a quality downlight, very simple thing, lots of them in a house. Uh, we've generally set a budget of about $100, $120 for a good downline. All it takes is for the electrician to go to the builder and say, oh, look, I've got another product here. It's only going to be $14.95. Um, do you want to put it in there? We'll save on the budget. The electrician gets it in. He goes to the wholesaler. The builder then puts a markup on it. By the time it gets to the client, it's still $80 by the time all the markups in there, but you've got a $14.95 quality. Multiply that by 60, 80 downloads through the house. It's a big chunk of money. The breaking down that, and, and of course the electrician gets sooky then and the, 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 um, the builder doesn't get markup on it and the wholesaler, um, it starts to get a bit shirty because he's been mucked around and all we want is a quality product. Who misses out? The client does because they've got a $14.95 downline and all the markup has been swallowed up by someone and not actually delivered to the project. What we've seen, because there hasn't necessarily been local uh, design perspective fighting for good uh, products in a project, is that the trades have become the experts and uh, they've been doing it for so long the clients trust them and you know, in some sense, they can be trusted and they do know what they're talking about. But when an electrician says to a client, we can get cheaper downlights, and instead of doing four of the expensive ones that these guys have uh, proposed, we can put six um, in your bedroom and they'll only cost, you know, 15 bucks each from middies. And, you know, what they end up doing is putting a sea of downlights in a room, you know, downlights over beds, right in your eyes when you're reading a book or something, rather than, you know, what we've actually proposed with a lighting designer to illuminate the room correctly and actually create a great experience for the client. And, you know, the trades aren't thinking about that. They're really just thinking about price and from what we've experienced. And um, they act in a way where they feel like they're spending their own money and not the client's money. Uh, which has been a really interesting thing to learn. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's a pretty unique challenge. So you've got to be, I mean, you must have to have uh, very trusting relationships with the people that you work with on the projects, right? 
Is that- we're only getting to the point now where we're, we're getting trusted builders and trusted subcontractors on board. And because there are a few traders here, we generally know the good ones and the bad ones. And nine times out of 10, the bad ones will come to the top of the pile because they're the least expensive. We've actually jokingly talked about introducing uh, a note in our terms and conditions that says that if you're using a friend who's a tradie because they're giving you a lower price or they're going to help out and you know for a slab of beer, that there's actually a penalty rate uh, that we will charge to manage that trade relationship. So you know we end up needing to talk to the client a lot more about why something that their friend's proposing may work, may not work. So, you know, it happened on a few of our early projects and we we were really burnt out by it. It doesn't really cost us that much more in terms of fees, but it just, it was so tiring to go through the whole process again of why we were doing something a certain way. And we were doing that because that's what the client wanted. It's, it's just so cool hearing about the different sort of challenges because um, I think the opportunities are, are obvious, but I think some of the challenges of, of working where you guys are is, is so unique and you have to approach things very differently to a firm, you know, in Collingwood um, to get your work done, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, that's, and that's something that you're both kind of aware of. But I think what's really impressive um, is that you're also thinking about how can we improve the culture <laughs> over the long term yeah. um, so that, you know, maybe, maybe five years from now or 10 years from now, our life is a lot easier than it is today. And hopefully we've had an influence on the area and how things get done around here. Mm, look, we're also, uh, we also face ourselves with, uh, are faced with rather, um, the tyranny of distance. We've just won a project out in a town which is about an hour and a half from here. And if you think we're far flung, this town is even further far flung, um, <laughs> called Jerilbury. Um, we had the choice of one local builder who was willing to build a house in this town. He's booked up until the middle of next year. We had to go back to the volume house builder who built the house that we're renovating. Um, <laughs> in 1992 and say, can you find the original drawings for us? And by the way, would you be interested in going out to Drilbury again? And I've started this quite um, quite unique conversation with a volume house builder who did quality stuff in their time to say, uh, do you want to go back to this house and have a look at it? So we're, we're now starting up a good relationship with them based on the fact that um, they know this house and they will travel to Drilbury because there's just no one else will do it. Um, so... Maybe this might be a bit of a strange question, but uh, you guys have had profiles like an Architecture Australia, Australian Design Review, and I'm obviously coming across you guys and wanting you to come on the podcast desperately as well. What do you think it is that people find so interesting about Regional Design Service? Philip, you can start that one. I'll (laughs) think about it for a second. Go for it, Philip. I guess, um, and we, we learned this very quickly, is that people have an idea of what country life is and it's this kind of country style glamour that, you know, everyone lives in a homestead with a Paul Bangay garden and and it's just so far from the truth. Uh, You know, we live in a suburban development that we surprisingly found an architecturally designed house and so I guess the interest has been that we came out here with an agenda to start a commercially viable practice, which everyone thought wasn't possible. Like, you know, you go to the country um, to, you know, you burn out, you move to the country and you start a practice that maybe doesn't have a lot of intention. And, And so what we found early is everyone was just surprised that we were doing what we were doing. And then 
the way we were doing it. So we were being, I guess, you know, talking plainly. We were trying to demystify design to the community because we realised that there wasn't a very good awareness of what we do. And, you know, we, we always wanted to, we wanted to have morning teas with the CWA and we wanted to go and meet with the men's shed and, and look at collaborating on designing furniture with them. And so, you know, we really set ourselves out to be a community-focused design studio as a way of bringing people on the journey with us and in, engaging them to realise that they already know about design because it's this big misconception that, you know, the everyday person doesn't know what design is, so they shouldn't or can't have an opinion of what happens in their community. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And the fact that we get involved in so many other community things, we're visible and we're an active part in making things better. I'm going to be running for local council this year. Um, I didn't think I'd ever be doing that, but it's the, the obvious next step to continuing this great momentum of change um, and doing things better. And imagine if, imagine if we could get back to the, the heyday of, the, of the, the 20s, which was wheat and wool, or the 70s, which is wheat and wool again, when things were done properly, we had money to spend and we spent it on our town in a really positive way rather than just on ourselves by going on holidays or buying large screen TVs. We invested in the places that we enjoy visiting, playing sport in, relaxing in, arts and culture, all that sort of stuff. Being on the ground, um, sort of selling that message through architecture and design has earned a lot of trust from people and people don't see us as a threat anymore. They see us as an important part of the, the fabric that is country life. And I think that's attractive to country people, one, but also people my age, I'm, I'm classic Gen X, um, now coming home with having travelled the world, with having lived in cities and going, you know what, why can't it be done here? Imagine it. Imagine if Coral was like that great town that I saw when I was living in the UK. It's all possible. And I think that's attractive to people, young people and old. Yeah, totally. So so, so you were kind of being honest about the kind of realities of, of, of what it was what it was like there. Um, doing a lot of contributing and also sort of just being yourselves and having this, you know, identity of this is who we are. We're not, you know, we're we're kind of we're very we're very sort of comfortable in our own skin with this practice. And, you know, I think what, what one of the things that's just so even distinctive about, about your office or even your storefront is that it's like, you know, it, it's like it was just taken out of Melbourne, a really cool studio space. <laughs> and it's, it's, <laughs> it, just, it just all seems like a little bit out of place and a little bit of a sort of surprising combination of, of of elements and I, I think I think it's just so interesting the way that you guys have approached it and thanks um, Dave and look I, I will add that having had many years working for Vitra it's a little bit like stepping out of a cult um, working yeah. for a Swiss German company where everything is done perfectly all the time um, it's a hard to deprogram from that but it's also a, a fantastic way to approach life um, through design and uh, that influences so much of um, the way that I work in our business doesn't it Philip I can I could be a little bit myopic at time or Swiss German, but it's but it's also a great part of our success. Mm. Yeah, and which is why you see the storefront the way it is. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe and maybe that's a good transition into kind of touching a little bit on on your partnership and having these separate roles because it's um most of the time uh, I mentioned this to you guys before the call, but most of the time I'm dealing with a single director. I'm interviewing just a just sort of a sole director, uh, and it's not often I get the opportunity to speak to um, uh, co-directors or partners um, in in an architecture practice. So um, you have two different roles, and it would be interesting to hear. Um, maybe a little bit about what what each of you kind of focuses on day to day, and and maybe uh, Philip, do you want to start off um, and and talk a little bit about your role? Then Aaron can kind of hear about what sort of activities you're responsible for running the practice. Yeah, so it's a interesting question because Aaron and I really overlap in how the practice runs day to day. Uh, I guess at, at its base level, I am the design director, so it's kind of my uh, responsibility to make sure the projects are going out and working with our team to uh, do all the documentation, uh, make sure that the design is progressing and that it's of a standard that you know we put out for every project, so every project gets the same quality of work. And then, uh, you know, I, I help manage the social media with Lucy and our general marketing. So we have weekly catch-ups on that where, you know, Aaron's role as the director of business, um, you know, in its title sounds like he's just doing the accounting um, all the time. But, you know, his experience in design and in interiors means that, you know, he and I are constantly overlapping when we're creating something or visioning a project. Uh, and that's also with the team. So it's not this kind of top-down hierarchical thing where I'm deciding the direction. Uh, it's it's really a collaborative effort with the team. And, and I guess, you know, part of that is because, uh, you know, we have a diverse client portfolio where they're not coming, as, coming to us for one thing. Uh, we're really responding to their own unique personality. So it's... Um, it's, it's very blurred in our studio of who's doing what at any time because we're just, you know, working on so much. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to do. So we share the, we share the load. And, um, Philip, you're right. And, and work doesn't, unfortunately, work doesn't stop for us as soon as we check out of the office. We are disciplined with leaving on time um, now that we're both parents, but that's, that's something we'll come to a bit later. Um, but having started off, in my design career, working for Country Road part-time in the early 90s, it was my first part-time job going from Coral up to Albury to work for Country Road. I hadn't yet decided whether or not I wanted to go to university. I'd applied to do so, but hit the ground running at Country Road and it segued into this amazing career of working for Australia's premier retail organisation at the time. I became part of their um, uh, visual merchandising team, which really helped me cut my teeth in, in how a place could look, but similarly, how to look after people when they're in your space. And that influences so much of my approach to the business, whether it be taking a phone call or getting the flies out of the window or um, making sure that our fee proposal is absolutely 100% perfect. That's where I then make sure that it's done right. Similar to that, working um, then within the architecture and design space with with uh, Vitra, Herman Miller and Artemidi, I got a really good understanding of how to create space with product that is of amazing quality um, and how that means that people buy things to have for a long time. So whatever we do with our interior spaces, I generally get involved because I've got a great understanding of products that can build up an interior well. 
as a consequence of working with so many great interior designers and architects over the 25 years I've been in the industry, I've kind of had an apprenticeship of how to do things well. My ex-partner of 11 years is an interior designer who works for um, Design Office in Melbourne. So one half of Design Office was one half of me for 11 years. So that's been an amazing apprenticeship. To then bring it home to my hometown and work with an amazingly talented architect like Philip, I've kind of um, found where I need to be. That aside, someone still has to process all of the payments that come in, run payroll, and my business background helps me do all that stuff, pay the rent, make sure the bills are paid and so on. Um, That's an important part of the business that I hope to move away from this year because it's now, as we get bigger, starting to take me away from the things that I really love, and that is talking about design and showing the value of how it can improve your life. Yeah, wow, interesting. Mm. And so you also have that communications person that works for you as well, Lucy. Um, it's pretty – It's so from what I've seen on your website, um, I think you guys are a team. Is it five people including the two of you as well at the moment or uh, what, what sort of headcount are you at at the moment? We are at five. That's yeah, right. so, so yeah. five. So it's pretty uncommon for a practice with five people including two directors to have – a communications person is one of the sort of first few people on the team. Yeah, um, it is actually. It's very unusual. It's it's usually when I think of somebody, somebody a practice that has an in-house communications person, we're usually talking like thirty people at this point, right? So it's um it's very interesting. And and so what's the what's Lucy's role? And um I guess uh I guess are you guys what sort of communication stuff are you doing that you've got a person that's kind of devoted to that role? And maybe do you want to speak about that a little bit? Well, how often do you hear someone say, oh, I've got to get that Instagram post up or I've got to share it to LinkedIn or I've got to share it to Facebook and then you, you try and find software to help you and it ends up being a bit clunky and, it, you know, you end up with different formats of pictures and to go back and fix it after you actually found some time to do it in the first place is always really difficult. So the need was obvious. It wasn't until Lucy literally walked through the front door and said, hi, I married a farmer and um, I've moved up from Melbourne and I was wondering if I could work for you. It was literally that conversation. Yeah. Both Philip and I looked her up and down and went, oh, my God, she's got really nice shoes on. <laughs> Look, Lucy's a very intelligent person aside from her really great shoes. And, and style to know that she, and her taste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she has a background in multi-residential sales and marketing. Um, and communications. And we thought, yeah, actually, maybe you could do this stuff that we're not doing very well, i.e. social media updates, uh, relative to the fact that she is a single mum and also a farmer's wife, so extremely busy, but wanted to work for us. So she's helping you guys with like social media. But um, so what other what other sorts of things uh, does she assist you with? And and I guess really, I mean, talk, talk a little bit about, you know, Sell, sell, sell everybody on the idea that they might be, might should possibly consider having a, mm. a, a part-time uh, communications person join their team. Absolutely, like Lucy uh, helps us with our uh, business development. She's getting client testimonials. She's coordinating our photographer bookings for projects. She, you know, does all the social media. She's constantly learning. Uh, in that regard, you know, we're, we all are with social media. So when there's something new that comes out, we we quickly adapt and shift. It's it's meant for us that uh, we could start taking a step back from the brand and start looking at it critically. Uh, where are we going? Who do we want to be? Uh, what is our uh, what do we communicate of our brand? 
And, you know, that meant at the end of last year, Lucy was able to pull together uh, kind of our, our brand document in a way of um, keywords and, and what we, where we want to be seen in the future. And, and that's now afforded us the opportunity to engage an external consultant who we're actually meeting with this week, uh, who's uh, undertaking a further brand audit because we're coming up to our fifth birthday next year. So it means that rather than just being reactive in our marketing, we're actually looking forward 12 months in advance, uh, planning our fifth birthday and, and how do we do that really successfully, celebrate our clients, celebrate our community and celebrate everything that we've achieved so far. Mm, agreed. And so Lucy works um, two days a week. Um, so she'll work from 9 until 2.30. Then she goes and picks up her kids and takes them home. Um, Lucy works as a contractor, so she's not not on our staff. That works for her. That works for us. It helped um, financially for us, but at the same time worked really well for her. Um, she does things like competition entries. And how often do you think, oh, my God, I've got to get that competition entry in? She's already onto it. She's telling us which ones are coming up. And we talk about whether or not we'll enter it rather than we've just got to get the competition entry in. So uh, without Lucy, we wouldn't nearly have been as successful as we have been. Yeah. I love it because, um, you know, it's it's not often that people think or even consider the idea of getting a communications person because these are the, the tasks that you're describing are the exact sorts of things that I put on the to-do list for my clients. Like all the just get the just, it's just those basics. None of them in their own right are that challenging, but it's just like somebody has to have time to do them. And that can be so challenging for directors who are busy doing other things. Um, and but people don't really ever think about the communications person. They sort of they get this idea of, well, maybe I need to go pay a marketing agency to do it for me or something. But this idea that you could actually get somebody part time two days a week um, with a good you know work life balance and everything that that's actually so yeah. attractive. I feel like everybody is going to be immediately going and posting a job ad if they're not already <laughs> moving to Korowa. They're, they're now posting a job <laughs> ad going, I need a two day a week part time um, communications person to come join the team. Or exactly. if well, you're going to start emailing Lucy, you need to take her email off <laughs> the um, website. No, you just no, the ex- so well. <laughs> yeah, I think um, well, people in the community have tried to poach Lucy, and not in a sense as taking away her away from us, but going, oh, she's only there two days a week. Can we get some of the other days? And we actually. <laughs> We went to Lucy and said, look, everyone's asking for you. Uh, they all need help. Uh, we think they need help too. Uh, are you available? Are you interested? And if you've got more time, can we give it to you? So, um, you know, we we care about our, you know, especially in the town where other businesses realise that they need assistance. So we didn't want to stop them from accessing someone like Lucy, Lucy, but we were also at the point where we were looking for a studio assistant. We thought, well, maybe... Um, Lucy could take on some of that role. Uh, find the money, find uh, the scope, and get someone on your communications team, even if it's just a contractor or a consultant. The value for your business will be phenomenal. Like the, the e news that Lucy does fortnightly for us, the forwarding that we've seen from that from our clients to their friends to show what, you know, their project stage is up to or we're up to has been incredible and that's led to so many project leads for us. 
we picked up a, a rural client recently to to build a new home for them. They're selling their their quite significant farm and moving into town. They get our newsletter because their their son is a landscape architect with a prominent landscape architecture practice in Melbourne. They came to us on a recommendation from another rural client. We're talking people in their late sixties. They're not going to be on social media seeing stuff come through. They wouldn't be on Instagram. This short, sharp newsletter that they receive into their mailbox that they check daily is what they want. They want to know that um, their connection with us is going to be easy. And for them, that's email. And, Dave, you've probably seen that they're short and sharp. They're no more than two, maybe three paragraphs with a really good lead image. But if you want more info, you can drill down into it and go to the website where you see it as an emerging project or a delivered project. So you've got a choice. If you want to read more, you can. If not, then you can just read it and bid it. Yeah, that's awesome. So we actually started the newsletter, uh, again, at the start of COVID in 2020. And it was really a way for us to say that we're still here, we're still active, we're still busy, there's things going on. We, we wanted to put out an element of positivity when we were seeing, you know, everyone kind of going, we're shutting down, we're not working, things are terrible. So that was kind of part of our core uh, reason for starting the e-news. We debated whether it should be monthly or fortnightly. So we ended up going with fortnightly because we only wanted to have three articles per newsletter and they needed to be short, sharp and succinct. So one or two paragraphs of what's going on and then people could find you know, a link to either go to our website to see more or a news story we were sharing from the local paper. We also use it to promote community events. So, you know, there's so much going on uh, and the, why, because we wanted it to be a positive thing, we wanted to say, like, the art group are having this event coming up when everyone was saying, oh, there's no events anymore because of COVID. So we, we really wanted um, to project a very positive outlook. There's a lot happening here. Uh, get involved. Uh, come say hi. Uh, and, yeah, that was that was kind of the driver i guess behind it that's so amazing i mean what's funny is that initially i thought when thinking about your studio i just thought that you know the visibility played the biggest role in all these things but when i actually dug a little bit deeper into your online marketing and your sort of pr and communications i think this is where lucy's just absolutely crushed it but you guys are kind of doing more and better than you know 95 percent of firms i think in terms of the journal the website the branding the personal brands and the kind of friendly approachable sort of um, presence that you have, Instagram, uh, across the board, like you're doing, you're executing everything at such a high level as well. Yeah, so we've we've spent a lot of effort and time on uh, our outward projection of our brand and what we believe in and who we are. We've done that from you know the outset of the practice, and I guess because of that awareness, we're at that point where we're questioning, uh, you know, how do our clients see us? What or how does our community see us? And But I guess ultimately we don't want to lose a sense of our, um, I, I guess, honesty of how we present ourselves as well 
And I think it's putting down putting down really strong foundations when we started. Even though we had a tiny studio as our first shop, we made sure the window was right. We employed Joe Sherry from Studio Sherry to do our initial branding and yeah. do it really well and have it sustainable. Um, not ecologically sustainable, but sustainable so that we can keep using it in a lot of different ways over a long period of time. And some of the devices that Joe created that we still continue to reinvent change colour and so on, have been such a great way to keep evolving into different things from a marketing perspective, but stay a hold of the original design concept in that branding. Um, so putting those foundations down, even investing in the shop that we own, um, rural and regional uh, shop fronts, for example, uh, a dime a dozen, finding good ones is a little bit harder, but ultimately they're much cheaper than buying in the city. So we combined our superannuation and bought our shop with our super fund. As wow. our business, we're able to go in as a tenant. We would never have had that opportunity in the city. We bought our shop with the small amount of super that we had because we're in a country area. Now we have great advantages with tax offsetting, for example. All of those things we've been really um, uh, lucky to have discovered through having great partners like Lucy, but even our accountant. We use an accountant who um, has worked with an architecture practice before but is not sat in the city. She's in the country. She understands what country life is like but understands what it takes to run an architecture practice. Yeah, awesome. Well, I absolutely love chatting to you guys. I feel like I feel like we should wrap up there. We've covered so many different things, but um, it was amazing having you both on. And uh, we'll have to do another follow up episode maybe uh, in a year's time, and to talk back at all the events that you'll be able to get back into now that things have opened back up. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting us. Well, that was my conversation with Aaron and Philip. If you'd like to learn more about Regional Design Service, you can visit regionaldesignservice.com or follow them on Instagram at regional underscore design underscore service. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every second week. It also helps other architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations. So, I really appreciate it when you subscribe in your favorite podcast app. If you've got any feedback on this episode, you can get in touch at dave at vanityprojects.com. I absolutely love hearing your thoughts. And if you'd like to learn more about me, Dave Sharp, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list who receive my weekly emails, or learn more about my marketing coaching services for small architecture practices. So, that's all for this episode and I'll see you next time.